Father, thank you for the opportunity again to come together to continue our review of history. Guide us as we do this. May your spirit take the elements of the past, bring meaning, and show us their connection to your heart and your plan, and guide us individually in what we need to do with this information. We give this time to you in Christ's name. Amen. We have, um, in our Pioneer Project, digitized uh, a large amount of the Pioneer materials. Uh, The portion of the materials that we have not digitized as much as the books and pamphlets are the periodicals. The bulk of what the Pioneers, I think, published were in periodicals. So uh, pray for us if we need to do more of that, that we can get that done. We are spending a lot of time right now bringing some of the Pioneer materials back into print. And you'll find that at our exhibit. I actually have a, a little flyer um, that shows the titles that we've done in English, as well as a page of the ones in Spanish and Portuguese that we've done. So we're trying to make it available as widely as we can. I do believe that with technology and what God has enabled in the last decades, that it's clearly part of the Re- Daniel 7 and Revelation 20 picture, that judgment involves the opening of books. And I like to say the official records, the complete records are all up there. And we will all have access to them at some point. But before the second coming, those of us on earth don't have access to it. Uh, There's others that are having access to it right now. And that will be the initial determination of who's going to spend eternity with God and who's not. But we're going to have access after the second coming. And apparently there's going to be a reopening of the books at the end of the millennium. Revelation 20 says it. And there's going to be a panoramic review of history much better than I can give here. And at the end of that, what's going to happen? Every knee is going to bow. Um, And that's going to be an amazing event that's going to be burned into the memory of the universe forever. But it's the uplifting of the cross that's really going to make the difference, I think. It's not just what you did or what you did. It's what Christ did. And what you did in light of that, right? That's going, to be, that's going to cause the knee to bow. So may we understand as much of the books that we need to understand before the second coming to understand why we're Adventist, right? And to help others to make a decision for the eternal principle, which is what we're looking at. By the way, we're at 1894, and we've completed our, our tables. There's six messages, there's seven landmarks, there's five ministries. They're all there. And so what we're dealing with now is what happens to these in light of our history? What are we doing? Are we able to proclaim these and receive? You can't give what you don't have. Are we able to receive these and proclaim these, right? Are we able to hang on to these so they don't move, you know? At the same time, we're digging deeper and deeper into them. Do we understand all there is about these? Well, there's a statement we're going to find about the three angels' messages themselves, these three that are highlighted as often a way to summarize the messages, and how well we understood them by 1902. And what, is, what happens to our ministries? If, particularly if, if these two principles are all mixed up in the ministries. You know, So hang on to that. 1894, just hit the road running here. Ellen White writes an article, which I think is very significant. It's entitled, Romanism, the Religion of Human Nature. 
You don't have to have a Jesuit infiltrate your church. What will destroy your effectiveness with God? What will keep you in Babylon, which is another name for the fourth kingdom, Rome? What will keep you there? Your nature. If, if you don't understand your human nature and are converted and the gospel begins to cleanse you of this satanic principle, you're going to reproduce Rome in your family. You're going to reproduce it in your local church. You're going to reproduce it wherever your influence is because it's just in your nature. So I'm not saying the Jesuits are good people. I'm just saying they're not the real problem. It's your nature, my nature, that's the real problem. And they've taken advantage of that and they're just, they're just manipulating it. And so if we understand the principles and we lay the axe at the root of the tree of the principles, whether it's a Jesuit or an unconverted Adventist, we're laying the axe, as John the Baptist said, at the root of the tree, which God help us to do that. November 14, statement about a delay. I'm just going to say this. I'm not going to take time to read these because we could read each one of them. But again, Lord would have come if. 1895, W.W. Prescott at the 1895 GC session, gives a series of sermons based on the prayer of Paul in Ephesians 3. I bow the knee to our Father and whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Did you know there's a family, heaven and earth? It's also called a church. It's also called uh, God's host, you know, the, the army of God. Um, all these things are true and picture what's going on. But... The first head of the, of the divine human family, he was a human, Adam, and we know what he did. And so there had to come a new head, a divine human head, right? And that's the second Adam. So it's a beautiful series of sermons on the two Adams, powerfully picturing that. And we published that series at Books Available. Um, in her diary that same month, Ellen White's not in the States for the GC session, but in her diary... She again talks about the message, the last message of warning and mercy. And she's speaking of these as a whole, the last message, right? What has happened? Has been retarded in doing his work by the selfish love of money, the selfish love of ease, and the unfitness of man to do a work that needs to be done. In other words, if you are still confused or uncommitted, on these two principles. What are you doing with every ministry that you're involved with? You're retarding it rather than making it go. You're retarding it. And I've become convinced this is a way that we just need to explain Adventist history. There's no other explanation to me as to why we're still here. It comes back to the two principles and just seeing them detailed in this history. Um, September. A testimony to the general conference leaders all about this issue right here, organization. Are they running the organization as God would? No, she said they're on the track of Romanism. She said, you do not understand the righteousness of Christ by faith. Well, you mean the faith of Jesus changes how I run an organization? Yes, it does. There's, there's, it, there's counsel to people running schools. What do you do with students? How, how fast do you kick them out when they have problems? And she said, let's try the love method. She's not being indulgent. She's just saying, you want to kick them out and put them on Satan's ground? That's the way to lose them. 
She's not saying there's never a time to do that, but it's not as often and as quick as we tend to think when we don't have God's attitude in it. Um, again, intensely practical, as we said. That same year, Prescott goes to Australia and he preaches a series of sermons there at a camp meeting. Ellen White's president, her secretary, is taking it down in shorthand. And her descriptions of those meetings are Pentecostal in nature. Um, those are republished. It's called In the Spirit's Power, the series of Prescott sermons. Uh, there's a lot of connections there that we could talk about, but um, I'm just giving you some highlights that have jumped out at me over the years. 1896, Battle Creek has experienced showers of heaven and the latter rain, but what was the response of some? They showed contempt. They felt annoyed. Hearts were full of unbelief, and they were saying, this is only excitement. This is not the Holy Spirit. So if you misjudge, is there, is there a counterfeit to genuine revivals? That is excitement, that is fanaticism, yes. But if you get confused as to what's genuine and not, you are very easily calling the genuine work of the Holy Spirit fanaticism. And that happens, that's, that's one of the devil's ways of destroying a genuine revival. It's for people to take it into fanaticism or people to look at, at the genuine and confuse it with fanaticism. Maybe because some people took it there. So God help us to have genuine discernment to understand what that is. Um, May of 96, another letter. If Satan has his way, the time of preparation will be, what's the word? Prolonged. Prolonged. When I first read that, I said, that's the clear statement on why I'm, I'm alive. Why the church is still here, you know. So somebody's had his way. And who was that? It wasn't God. June, Ellen White, in a letter to Uriah Smith, I believe based on one of the sermons that Prescott gave the previous October, November, in those Armadale sermons, she takes a stand on the law in Galatians which was the relationship between the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. She takes a stand on it as to which law it was. That was the big surface argument in Minneapolis. And she said the Holy Spirit was speaking especially of the moral law. And that word especially means not only. Um, so there's, there's the... Sometimes the testimony of Jesus is very clear in its exegesis of Scripture. That's an exegetical statement. If the Holy Spirit was meaning this when Paul wrote that, you know... That was what the scripture means. And you can go go uh, go with that for sure. But the entire letter, even though it was written from a sick bed and very short, it is full of, I call it her most important letter she ever wrote. The understanding of the relationship between these two elements in the role of God's law, in the light of the gospel, how they relate. Again, that's most holy place material. Um. But she said, in a great measure and to a great degree, this light has been kept from the world by the action of her own people. That's where she ties, in that letter, she ties it to the history of Minneapolis. July, the next month, she writes an article entitled, Why the Lord Waits. Who's waiting on who? Are you waiting on Jesus to come? You might think you are, but the Lord's waiting on you and his people. I mean, you can't do it all by yourself. It's a corporate thing as well as an individual thing. But that is an amazing statement. And it connects it with the latter rain. Go read about it. It's all about him, what he's doing. October, she writes 
a letter to the head physician. She's writing now to somebody in this ministry, the health ministry. He's at St. Helena. He is not a health reformer. Can you imagine? And it was him to him that she wrote, What is justification by faith? It's the work of God of laying the glory of man in the dust. And doing for man that which he cannot do for himself, these lessons you have never learned. And then she says almost immediately, if you understand physiology as you should, your drug bills would be much less. The light God has for us is not just theology, it's physiology. I would say it's agriculture. I would say it's economy. It's every area of life. That's how intensely practical the gospel is. It changes how you do things. And you have a way of thinking that the Holy Spirit can give you light and clarity. And you can be a blessing to others, right? And people will be, how are you so wise? Well, you're not wise. You're just in touch with the one who is, right? <laughs> You'll have to say, it's not me. You know, they will see your good works and they'll try to glorify you. But what does Jesus say they will do? They'll glorify your Father because you deflect that. You have to say, it's not me. They may want to lift you up and you say, don't do that. Um, the next month, Mrs. S.M.I. Henry, prominent evangelist with the Women's Christian Temperance Unit, a patient in Battle Creek with an incurable heart problem. She accepts the Sabbath and she joins the movement. Uh, a window into a, a lady's life who we need to understand better. Um, November of that year. Her book, by the way, her, her life story is on the GC Archives book section. You can just download the PDF, uh, My Mother's Life. November, same month, great waymarks of truth are to be carefully guarded. Again, another metaphor for these landmarks. December, Ellen White's writing to Olson, GC president, for the first time, explaining to him why she was invited to Australia five years before. There it is. Our separation from Battle Creek was to let men have their own will and way, which they thought superior to the way of the Lord. The result is before you. What was happening in Battle Creek in the 1890s? Again, I say it was the best of Adventism and the worst of Adventism. And the complex picture often confuses us. We usually focus on one or the other. We don't like to mix things together, but it, it's complex. There's some people running with God's plan, and there's others that are just opposing it. And sometimes there's people, you know, Cooperating with God in one area and not cooperating with God in another area. The result is before you. 1897. There's a great lack of knowledge in regard to the rise and progress of the third angel's message. Loughborough's written his book in 92, The Rise and Progress, but they're not reading the history, understanding it as they ought, apparently. Uriah Smith publishes his last edition of D Daniel Revelation, which we also have in our uh, republished books. Um, she highly endorsed his historicist view. When she endorsed a person's works, she wasn't giving, again, we said earlier, you will find perfection in no man's investigations of truth. She wasn't saying you're, it's perfect in every detail. So they're wanting, she's calling for, for more study. When Haskell came to her and he said, I've been studying Daniel Revelation, but Uriah Smith's already written a book on it. She said, if God has given you more light, publish it. So he came out with the story of Daniel the prophet and the story of the seer of Patmos. God doesn't give all the light to one person. That's not even safe, is it? <laughs> no, what would happen to that person? That temptation's like crazy. Um, 1898, message of mercy. Had that message of mercy been given, Christ would have come. 
She's given a dream apparently that year that she would have to rest in the grave before Christ came. That's the first I can find a clear evidence that she had that she would not live to see Jesus come. And if we look at her, um, her letters and, and, and writing, she's realizing I'm not going to be around, but my writings will remain. And she just writes and writes and writes and writes. We'll look at that in a little bit here. 1899, the third angel's message in place of swelling. Okay, third angel's message. They pictured the loud cry as the loud cry of the third angel. So this third angel, instead of swelling to a loud cry, is being what? Smothered. And what is it? If you look at the whole context, it's medical missionary work. What's happening to medical missionary work? The medical missionary work is the right arm of the body. What was happening to the right arm? The right hand became the whole body and could no longer rightly represent the gospel ministry. Do you see the imbalance that was taking place? This thing that, that was to be the right arm was just becoming dominant. And so what was happening to the leaders in the health work? God was giving them tremendous success. People were coming from all around the world to Battle Creek for, for healing. And what was happening? God wants to make you a success because he wants you to be a blessing to others. What's the danger in making you a success? It goes to your head. And she asked to finally write to Kellogg and said, the case of Nebuchadnezzar has been shown to me as applying to you. Is this not great Babylon that I have built? The other danger of success is that you'll burn out because you get busy. Look at Christ. How busy was he in his medical missionary work? He didn't have time to eat at times. His family thought he had gone insane. The needs are so great, you can burn out. And so you need to know how to live a balanced life in the midst of the success God gives you, and stay humble. Maybe like Ellen White, you need to say, Lord, if I'm not going to stay humble, make me sick. <laughs> Think of how sick Ellen White was throughout her life. Um, pride is the, is the bane of our fallen natures, right? May 11, confusion still exists as, as to what constitutes the pillars. You mean they're still confused on these? What is a pillar and what is not? Uh, McGann publishes his book on the peril of the Republic. McGann is another little bio story that's amazing. Uh, a little Irish lad that ends up in Battle Creek off of a farm in the Midwest. New convert. Ellen White's in Battle Creek after Minneapolis. He becomes a member of her household. She becomes a mother to him. And by 99, he's a history teacher at Battle Creek College, writing books on history. And he and Sutherland take over the college. And um, Sutherland had come from Walla Walla right here in the early years. A lot more of those stories. 1900, Ellen White returns from Australia, purchases the Elms Haven home. A lot of statements she's making around the turn of the century that I can understand. And I, I think if I were to ask her, what do you mean by this? She would tell me what she told Andreasen when he asked her that. I have no more light on that than you do. The prophets are not always shown the meaning of what they're given. Daniel had to study his own prophecies. She's saying things about the turn of the century that are amazing. And I've given a collection of them on my website there if you want to look at those. 1901, Ellen White's at the GC session and she addresses both unbelief and rebellion, notwithstanding the numeric growth and worldwide expansion of the church in the 1890s under the spirit of the loud cry message. I'm convinced there were individuals running with these messages. She said to a great degree it's been kept from the world, but it didn't, she didn't say to the total, a total degree. 
There were individuals. And that's why in the 1890s, in 1900s, we see, if you want to turn to that page, it's actually page, um, page 24. SDA entry into new countries by year. Just see where the new countries being entered peaked out. But she's addressing that problem in 1901. And I would recommend you read that entire speech. The light of the past 10 years had been assented to, but elements of unbelief prevented the light from being acted upon. So this is this mixed picture, right? That same year, McGann and Sutherland, who are running Battle Creek College, finally get the word from Ellen White. They've been asking her, we want to move the college out of Battle Creek. And she's saying, wait. Now she says, now's the time. And by the end of the year, the college is out of Battle Creek. This is 25 years after that 1876 year that I mentioned. 25 years, Battle Creek. We need to know that history. The best and the worst of Adventism. And 1901 begins the scattering of Adventism from Battle Creek. There's people leaving. The college moves out there. It becomes Emmanuel Missionary College. Still there. It's known as Andrews University. And read about it. They, it's an amazing story of, again, educational reform. These guys were willing to run with education and apply the gospel principles to that. Did they do it without opposition? No. It's, it's really amazing. This is, this is when Ellen White wrote back to, to McGann and actually says to him, we may have to remain in this world many more years because of insubordination. But God's people should not add sin to sin by blaming him for their own wrong course of action. If you say, or hear someone say, Christ is going to come when he wants to come, they're blaming God for the consequences of their own wrong course of action. And she said that's adding sin to sin. We need to see what actually has delayed the Lord's coming. 1902, page 10. The need for the pioneers to speak up, right? They're dying off. Um, those that were there at the beginning saw these things were eyewitnesses of these early movements, miracles of God. We need them. And then 1902, two more ministries, in a sense, leave Battle Creek. At least Sanitarium burns to the ground in February. Publishing House burns to the ground in December, 1902. Publishing House never rebuilds. They move to Maryland with the General Conference Administration. Kellogg rebuilds the hospital even bigger than it was. And the monstrosity is still there in Battle Creek. It's now the global headquarters for the U.S. military logistics. Isn't that an irony? What God was doing in Battle Creek has become the center of the U.S. military. Uh, Whose victory is that? Last time I was there, you could go through it, but you have to go through security, and they'll show you the the beauty of the place. It has some historic significance. Um... During the review fire, when this house burned down, Loughborough's books, plates for those were destroyed. They could no longer print The Rise and Progress of Seventh-day Adventists. So that was published and sold for 10 years, 92 to 02. Then he was working on revising that. We'll see that. She writes to Wagner that year about the importance of understanding and presenting the book of Revelation. By the way, how many of these messages come to us from Revelation? Everything but this midnight cry, right? And she says this, no one mind can do this work alone. There's the evidence that God doesn't give it all to one. 
pressed together. Christ is the great teacher. Again, it's all about him, right? Do we understand what he's wanting to teach us? Then she says this, um, this, this part of it. We have in trust the grandest and most important truth ever presented to the world. Although that we have that, we are only babes as far as understanding the truth and all its bearings is concerned. Do you see what God has given us? And do you see the level of maturity that we have in that? That's not a compliment to tell somebody they're a baby. Right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with a baby. We love babies. But if they're that way 20 years later, there's something wrong. Right? Um, God help us. This was almost 60 years after the passing of time. That's not a compliment. And again, the importance of those messages highlighted in that. That year, she adds on the writing room to Elmshaven. Anybody been to Elmshaven? Seen the house? Been to that writing room above the kitchen? That was an add-on. Three windows, windows on three sides. 1902. That's when that room was added. 1903, she writes about what might have been, referring back to the 1901 conference. What was it? What could have been? A Pentecostal season that never occurred. What would it have looked like? It would be what the disciples experienced in Luke 24 and Acts 1. This repentance and remission of sin, confession, which always accompanies a genuine Holy Spirit revival. Not the excitement, feeling stuff. There are feelings, intense feelings, but there's a lot of tears, right? There's, there's weeping is present. Um, Picture in the Bible is full of that. Also, she says that same month, the 1901 session, was the greatest, most terrible sorrow of my life. No change was made. If you look at the 1901 conference, they changed the constitution of the church in order to clear up some of the Romanism that was in this. They changed the constitution. They did away with the presidency. There was no such thing as general conference president for two years. Position did not exist. But she looked deeper and saw they changed the Constitution, but they had not changed the heart. So that's what I see to reconcile these statements. That year, Uriah Smith dies. And another statement about delay. If if God's people had obeyed his word, they would be today in the heavenly Canaan. Again, a statement of unbelief, because it's by faith that we have genuine obedience. Faith and love. April. People are making war on Kellogg. Did Kellogg have his problems? Yes, but God had given him light on health reform and they were blaming him for the problems they had with health reform. And she said, it's not, Dr. Kellogg. You're fighting against God. In fact, your war on Kellogg has, has, has caused him, has contributed to, let's put it that way, he put on the coat of irritation and retaliation. Well, if he puts on the coat of irritation and retaliation, who is he taking his eyes off of? Jesus, and he's focusing on his enemies. So you become like your enemies, right? And who's, who's winning in that battle? The devil. No one's winning in that battle other than the devil. The gray-haired pioneers are needed. April 14. June 1, more of this. We need to review the history of Miller and Bates and the Advent message. Butler Loughborough's book should receive attention. Well, it had, the plates had burned, but he was working on a new edition. Right? And he came out with that a little bit later here. She writes five documents addressing the danger beginning that year of free love. Have you ever heard of free love? 
It's a teaching of spiritualism, by the way. It's rampant in our culture now. Free love says accept everything, accept everyone. Don't condemn. Did you know spiritualism teaches God does not condemn? The Bible teaches God does not condemn sinners, but he does condemn sin. And the cross proves that to us. He's justifying sinners and he's condemning sin in himself. And we're alive because of that. But to say he just doesn't condemn, period, is free love. Let's accept everything. And I would say that is rampant in our culture globally now. Let's accept everyone and accept everything. And it's coming into Adventism, unfortunately, too. And she's writing these letters to Wagner and Kellogg about that. It was coming in in her day. Um, publish, Kellogg publishes his book, The Living Temple. I'm at the top of 11. And that was in face of the opposition of the General Conference. And she talks about the mysticism that was in that book. Those that entertain these sophistries will soon find themselves in a position where the enemy can talk with them. You become vulnerable to supernatural satanic forces. And you might even think it's God talking to you. Again, the story of William Sadler illustrates that. If you don't even know who he is, we need to know the history of those who have left us because their stories have important lessons for us. Sadler was an SDA minister, physician. He was in charge of the medical missionary work in the California Conference when he was taking medical training in, in San Francisco. He married Kellogg's niece and apparently left the church with Kellogg. Becomes a student of Sigmund Freud, went to study under his care in, in Europe, comes back as a famous psychiatrist in Chicago the rest of his life. Assembles messages from a sleeping patient, supposedly divine revelations. The enemy's talking with him. His organization still exists. The book was published in the 1950s of these messages, and it's being translated into languages around the world. It's still running. It's one of the one of the deceptions of the enemy. And they trace that back. If you look at their website, they trace it back to Adventist. This is Kellogg and this whole all this Adventist connection. Uh, losing sight of the distinguishing truths for this time. Kellogg was losing sight of that. Um, God help us. The track of truth lies close to the track of error. That was the statement made about Kellogg's book. It wasn't all bad, but there was error mixed in with it. And only the Holy Spirit, only having on the armor of God, Ephesians 6, will you be able to battle against the principalities and powers, spiritual weakness and heavenly place. You have to have on every piece of that armor. Study it and know it well. First one is your loins go about with, with truth, right? Not this, but truth. The mystical in Ellen White's writings, if you want to know about how she uses those words, uh, I have a paper on that. Really, very interesting. The initial opposition to the loud cry message was based on a false charge that it was undermining the landmarks. By 1903 to 1905, the sanctuary landmark was under attack. They thought that preaching the faith of Jesus was undermining the, the law. It was not. It is by faith that the law is established. It's by love that the law is fulfilled. But there's always been that confusion. In Christ's day, that was confused. They thought Christ was doing away with the law. When Paul preached the gospel, they thought he was doing away with the law. Ellen White in her day said that Uriah Smith thought they were doing away with the law. But it doesn't. It establishes it. But the confusion that comes out of that they began to attack the sanctuary message. Kellogg and Ballinger both by 1903-1905. By the way, 1903 becomes the peak year for Ellen White's writings of manuscripts and letters. 
I have a, a page that shows that, if you're interested. Page 25, last page. Amazing, just a number of letters and manuscripts by year of her life. 1903, 472 letters and manuscripts that one year. Writing, 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 writing. Can you imagine that? Writing room above that kitchen in Elmshaven. She was traveling some too, writing even then. 1904, McGann and Sutherland remained at Emmanuel Missionary College only three years. And then they resign. McGann's wife dies. And Ellen White says she's died a martyr because of the opposition her husband's been working against in educational reform. They leave Emmanuel Missionary College and what does Ellen White encourage them to do? Go south. Start a school where you can do what God wants you to do and they buy the Madison School property the next month. And that's the beginning of an institutional lay movement in Adventism. It actually began in the 1890s with Edson White in his work for the blacks on his boat in the South. But it wasn't an institution. It was a moving target, as you could say. When the white people got angry at him, he'd pull up anchor and go somewhere else, right? They, al- they almost lynched him. He did that in the 1890s, um, mid-1890s. There's a book entitled A Mission to Black America that was written on that story. An amazing story about Edson. He's doing what his mother said to do. The church wasn't doing it. So how he built that boat, how he got it to Mississippi. Anyway, part of the Adventist history that we need to understand better. Um, they leave Battle Creek. They go to Madison and start a school there. Um, we have in Sutherland's book on education that we've republished, we have appendices about Ellen White writing about the importance of the Madison School. And so those are an addition that we decided to add to the end of that book. 1904, they were in the midst of a crisis that was making uh, of no effect the truth for this time. And she talked about the importance of not moving a stone and the foundation of truth, not a pillar. So she's using all these metaphors again. December of that year, again, using the, le- the message from the lessons from this message, the latest scene message, she's writing an article, A Call to Repentance, based on a 1902 manuscript. And look at it here. She says... The message to the Laodicean church reveals our condition as a people. Self-righteousness is not the wedding garment. And then she says the disappointment of Christ is is beyond description. You want to know how Jesus feels about it. He's humiliated in his people. Ten documents in the 05, documents that are calling for reaffirming the foundation. She says the fundamental principles that are based upon unquestionable authority. Reprint, reprint repeat and reproduce. Kellogg is under Satan's special guidance and Ballinger is being led by satanic agencies. She's, she's not mincing words. It's very, very significant. That year is when Loughborough publishes his new edition, The Great Second Advent Movement, which is the one that we republished in 92 to start with. And now we have the 2015 edition. Summarizing the Advent Movement. Um, by the way, she said that would meet the unsettled state of unbelief we got a testimony from, from Brazil after this book was pe- translated into Portuguese. A young man, probably in his late 20s, maybe early 30s, read that in Portuguese. And what was his testimony? Now I believe 100% in Ellen White. Seeing how God had led the miracles taking place, eyewitness accounts, now he understood the testimony of Jesus and that role in this movement. Um, praise God for that. Uh, 1906, five more documents at least. 
strengthen our belief in the past experience, what we're trying to do today. 1907, there's a need to vindicate the Advent message, the most important message that will ever come to the world. God bids us give our time and strength to the work of preaching to the people the messages that stirred men and women in 1843 and 1844. We're just not, not rereading these Bible texts. We're presenting the messages in the light of that history, what God was doing. And she actually says, don't keep telling the same people all over, over and over and over again. Go to people who've never heard it. That's in that, in that council there too. Um, Truths that have made us what we are, Seventh-day Adventist. Page 12, on our home stretch here. Again, the need to republish the early experiences of present truth. And then she makes a very interesting statement in the, in the October appeal, 1908. And this is, a, this is a, again, the mixed picture that we need to see with our history. Some people like to focus only on the negative. Some people like to focus only on the positive. But God sees everything. So she's saying in this document, as I read the reports of labor published in the review, there's the importance of the publishing ministry. We're getting reports, and sometimes now it's online. And our other denominational periodicals from week to week, my heart is rejoiced over the progress of the third angel's message in the home field and abroad. Our workers are having many remarkable experiences. The Lord is going before them, preparing the way. The cause of present truth is making rapid advancement. This should be a source of profound gratitude to God. As we contrast the present prosperity of the work with the early years of poverty passed through by the pioneers of this cause. You know the stories of how little they had? And how much they did with a little, right? When our numbers were but a few, our resources were limited, we can but exclaim, what has God wrought? And yet, this is the next paragraph, and yet, there remains much more to be done. In the past, we have not been as diligent as we ought to have been. In seeking to save the lost, precious opportunities have been allowed to pass by unimproved. This has delayed the coming of our King. So don't focus only on the negative or only on the positive. Put it together and be led to repent. Thank God for what, what mercies are of His, but repent um, as a people of the mistakes that have hindered things. I give you in the next paragraph just some observations from the little bit I've learned about Dr. David Paulson's life story, Footprints of Faith, some specific pages where I believe... These individuals had elements of the loud cry message in their bones as they went into their mission work, whether it's Chicago or whether it's the Altiplano of South America, Lake Titicaca with the stalls. Read their story and read what they're telling the people and that are changing lives. Indians in the highlands of, of Peru were weeping, saying, we never knew Jesus loved us like this. The stalls were living with them, teaching them how to bathe, how to treat their sicknesses, how to read and write. They never had anybody do that before. They were treated like animals by the other, other wealthier people and the Europeans that had come to South America. Um, what a picture of what could have been multiplied by hundreds and thousands around the world, right? That's the picture that I, I see. If not just a few had done it, but it was many, many, many people, especially even with the Millerite movement. There were thousands, tens of thousands that could have run with it back then. 
And there were many billions less on the world, right, to reach. 1910, the messages which the Lord has given in the past are very important at this stage of Earth's history. That's an understatement. Uh, very important. 1910, both Wagner and Jones are out of the church working with Kellogg, who was also out by that time. But again, don't forget the statement about fatal delusions. This does not mean they had not been used by God to do a work that is still vitally important and we need to understand and run with. That year, apparently, Andreasen visit, visits Ellen White's home and his testimony is an amazing testimony as well as to what he found from his visit there. Summary thoughts at the bottom of 12, and we're going to cover a little bit more on 13, 14, and 15. The response to the messages has caused the delay. Unbelief can be manifested by refusing the practical application of the messages. You may say, yes, yes, I believe that theological concept, but if you don't live it, that's unbelief. You know, you believe Christ has forgiven you, but you can't forgive your brother. You know what I mean? That's that type of thing. It becomes very practical. One cannot give what one does not have. An imbalance in the landmarks causes the messages, message to be marred in our hands. We talked about that. The importance of our history increases as the delay increases. There's an increasing need to explain what has happened and to explain the evidences for the delay. Evidism doesn't make any sense to many, many people because of this very thing. And not until... I have friends that wouldn't be in the church today if they didn't understand this history, at least to some degree. It makes sense now. Why we say we're Adventists and Christ is coming soon and yet he hasn't come soon. And it really calls for some personal acknowledgement of what has happened. The question of God's leading becomes vital. Is he really leading this still? In what sense can we say he's leading? Well, if we don't say there's been a delay, then there's something really strange going on with what he's been leading people to do. We put it all on him. Again, those things which no, no haste and no delay, which is in desire of ages, is regard to the first coming of Jesus. And the first coming of Jesus was, was based on specific time prophecies in Daniel 9, right? Did he come on time? Mm-hmm. Yes, he came on time. It's that she's talking about when she says, God's purpose is no, no haste and no delay. Let's ask the same question <clears throat> in regard to the second coming. Do we have time prophecies that predict the date of Christ's second coming? The date of Christ's second coming. No, that was the Millerite mistake, right? But do we have time prophecies that relate to the beginning of the judgment process that will lead to the second coming? Yes. So 1844 knew no haste and no delay. It came on time. But the second coming of Jesus cannot be tied to these statements. The second coming of Jesus is dependent on a people that will run with this message. And so how long is it going to take? It depends. There's no time prophecy for how long it's going to take. That's why the statements about delay make sense. It's elastic, right? It can be stretched or it could be shortened. You can hasten or delay. And there's people among us that are ridiculing the very idea of a delay. They say, oh, you can hasten it, but you can't delay it. Like, where do you get that evidence for that? So, why does she use titles 
like, why the Lord waits? <laughs> or why does she ask questions? Why has the Lord so long delayed his coming? If we don't know how to answer those, then um, we need to learn more from our history. What I've done on page 13, I've taken these, these uh, messages in their order and just illustrated how they become descriptions of these two principles. Back and forth, back and forth. First angel's message, the hour of his judgment has come. Worshiping the creator is the eternal, eternal principle, right? We're going to be worshiping him. This, the judgment actually is in favor of the truth and the judgment will be obviously against the lie. Every knee will bow to that at some point. And the second angel's message, Babylon has fallen. It's all about systems based on this, right? That's the second angel's message. Midnight cry. This is about ten virgins. These are, these are individuals that have, have embraced this. They're not hypocrites, we're even told. Right? They're virgins. But what are they lacking? Oil. What does oil mean? They have, all of them have oil, right? Um, I would say it's, there's a better way of saying it than they, they have the Holy Spirit. They have an experience with the Holy Spirit. They have the Holy Spirit in that sense. They recognize Him. They hear Him. He's dwelling with them in their vessel, and He's guiding them. And that's something you just have to develop by experience. You can't get it from the wise virgins, right? You have to have a personal experience with that, recognizing that voice and knowing it's the genuine and not the counterfeit, right? Learning the track of truth and the track of error. So again, you can be a virgin and be foolish and be left out of the wedding. Okay, There's the danger. Third angel's message, clearly addressing the danger of systems based on this lie, Babylon, worshiping the beast and the image. But again, at the end of the third angel's message, you have people that are, that are enduring because they're keeping. Commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. These are obviously expressions of the truth of God's character. Lay of the sin message. Well, what is that? Obviously, Laodicean message is about the solution to our needs that are inherent in our nature. And the needs are actually expressions of, of sin, the result of the lie, but everything that Christ offers us, gold, white raiment, and the ISAB are principles or expressions of the principle of the truth. The loud cry, again, it's a repeat of this second angel's message with a lot more information. Babylon has fallen. Um, the party, the power of the prophet that's involved with that whole system. Uh, that's the nations are drunk with her wine. The kings are in bed with her. And the merchants have made money off of her. They call it partying and power and profit. And it's all about glorifying self, and it's the taking of life. But again, out of that Laodicean message and loud cry, the earth is lightened with, with whose glory? Lightened with God's glory. Great authority and the glory, I think it's the authority of, of, of God's... How does God run his government? What type of authority does he have? It's the authority of self-sacrificing love. 
You know, it's the most powerful force in the universe without any coercion. And that's what it's built on. And that's the glory that they're in. And so the call is to come out of Babylon, come out of all the systems based on the lie. Um, the two principles in relation to the landmarks, I've outlined those as well. Just some thoughts on it. Second coming, Jesus is returning to rescue those sealed by the truth. Those refusing to give up the lie are left at the second coming and they're put to sleep for a thousand years. Cleansing the sanctuary before Jesus returns, there's a preparation of following Jesus and his blood into the most holy place. Those that are unwilling to go there with Jesus reject the principle of the cross like Judas to the end. Three angels' messages. Those embracing the truth carry God's final messages to call all into the most holy place before Babylon's physical fall. By the way, what takes first takes place first, a spiritual fall or a physical fall? Spiritual fall. Do you know the message about Babylon being fallen actually goes before that it physically falls? In fact, the greatest development of Babylon occurs while the message of its spiritual fall is being given. Right? The greatest development of this global system is going to take place now, since 1844, when the second angel's message began. And it's, it's basically being a building inspector. When you go to a house, what's one of the first things you want to check? Foundations. Foundations. And you find this magnificent structure is built on sand. What did Jesus say about those buildings? <laughs> Just wait for the storm and you'll see. No, don't wait for the storm. Get out of it. Get out of it, right? That's the call. It may, be, it may look great, but what is it built on? If it's built on self, get out of it. Because when the storm comes, those that are living for self are going to be your, your, your buddies that are going to look out for you, right? No. They're going to look out just for themselves. You won't be of any interest to them. It'll be survival of the fittest. Right? So again, get out of that. Get into... Christ's disciples were there. When he was arrested, what did they all do? They fled. Who were they looking out for? That's how mature they were or immature they were. So God help us to see the principles of the messages that we've been given. Even, I think, unreligious thinking people can reason that through. Because they realize that if their grandchildren are going to have something, we've got to leave them something, right? <laughs> and, again, it's going to make sense. Prophecies will make sense to a lot of people that we don't realize are even candidates for the kingdom. So, we're calling people out of Babylon. Those who insist on living for self are pictured as Babylon with its religious, political, and financial systems. And we could list a lot of other systems there, agriculture and whatever else. Uh, commandments of God. God's law still expresses the love that defines his character and how we are to reflect his image. Those who are lawless reject living with unselfish love and their, and their selfishness abounds. That's Matthew 24. The love of, because iniquity abounds, lawlessness abounds, the love of many wax cold. You're going to stop giving because everybody around you are takers. No, God asks you to keep giving to the end. He that endures unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness.
faith of Jesus, the gospel of the cross, gives the only hope any sinner has and enables them by, to live by faith in God and in others to the end as Jesus. The only people who have faith at the end are going to be who? The ones that put angels message pictures. They keep the faith of Jesus. Everyone else is going to lose faith in everyone else. And that's why the system's collapsed. If you don't have faith in anybody, you don't do business with anybody. And at the end, it will be seen how dependent we are on the Holy Spirit's presence for faith. When He's withdrawn, people will say, well, how are you able to trust anyone? Well, He hasn't been withdrawn from you. But he's, He is present now restraining that unbelief in unbelievers. But when He's withdrawn, they will have no ability to trust. And I think that's what's going to cause the collapse of everything. The storm will come. Those who reject the gospel demonstrate their inability to trust in anyone, including God, as the crop of selfishness ripens. The Sabbath, the worship of the Creator God, reveals those whose convictions is that He alone is worthy. Those who refuse God's sign of being Creator and Redeemer insist on worshiping the creature. Do you want a Bible text for that? It's Romans one twenty-five. What does Romans one twenty-five say? They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's Revelation summarized in one verse. Romans one twenty-five, The non-immortality of the wicked. The dependence the creature has on the creator reveals that ongoing life is dependent on union with God. Those who continue to embrace the devil's lie refuse the fa- to face the fact that the result of living for self is death. The law of life is broken. Desire of Ages, page 21. It began with self-seeking in heaven. It, you break the law of life, there's no life, right? What about the ministries? Yes. We've got five minutes left. Mm-hmm. Do you want to leave some time for questions? I asked that earlier, and there, was a, there wasn't a clear oh, okay. opinion about that. Well, we can re-ask it now. Do you have some? Anybody else have some burning questions? I was going to give you the sample statements about the ministries. So maybe one question would be, how do we start to get into our history? That obviously is an eyewitness account that is extremely valuable, has been endorsed by the testimony of Jesus, and so that would be a good place to start. Read Loughborough's book. It's a, it begins with a study of the second coming in the Bible, and then it gets into the Advent movement around the world and how the disappointment came and then the Sabbath-keeping evidence came out of that. Yeah. Thank you. That would be a good place to start. Okay, on page 14, I just want to hit the highlights of statements about these ministries and the importance of these two principles. And it's highlighting particularly... The fact that we're still here means the mission has not been completed, which which is a commentary not on the success of the truth, but the interference of the lie in our midst, which is, again, the principle of selfishness. And look at these statements. Uh, I highlighted in bold the word that I wanted you to, to quickly note. In general, men who are controlled by selfish desires should not remain connected with our institutions. And their course of action had better be exposed. 
that every church of Seventh-day Adventists may know what principles govern these men. Pretty clear words, right? And again, it's not a salvation issue. They can be saved, but don't put them in charge until they learn the principles that they need to learn. I'm not saying they can be saved while they're selfish. They can be saved if they repent. But in the meantime, don't put responsibilities on them to be in charge. Uh, what about meetings? Um, there are many Christless sermons preached, which are wholly destitute of the power and spirit of God. The speaker may please the ear, but his words do not impress the soul. God will work through humble men who love and fear him, who will not ascribe the glory to themselves, but will give all the praise of their being. Um, will give all the praise of their being a light in the world to the source of all light. Oh, for less of self and more of Jesus. It is human pride and self-confidence mingled with human depravity that has enfeebled the churches until they're sickly and ready to die. Publishing. I saw that there was a feeling among the hands in the office too selfish. There must be a sacrificing spirit with everyone. Their interest must be in the paper that everything be just right about it, that there be no errors in it. Organization. Those who are standing in responsible positions should understand clearly that they are not rulers over their fellow men. They are to reveal that the angels of God are constantly about them. They are laboring under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Carefully, they are to avoid everything that savors of a spirit of selfishness and self-esteem. For in meekness and humility of heart, they are to be examples to the flock. Health. I was shown that there was a spirit in that institution, this is Battle Creek, um, to get all the means they could. An avaricious spirit was manifested by Dr. Byington, also by Dr. Lay and the helpers. A selfish spirit that brought the frown of God and curse, frown and curse of God upon those who possessed it. There was not an unselfish devotion to the work and laboring with an unselfish interest. God wants this branch of the work to live and flourish. By the way, Kellogg, in many ways, if you look at him, he was unselfish. He could have been a multi-millionaire. But he had like, what, 40 or 50 foster kids he helped to raise in his home? Anyway, as a lot of people don't realize that spirit of benevolence that he had. And they pictured this big thing that he was building was all to make him wealthy. Well, it eventually went to his head. And he got proud, proud about it. But it wasn't because he was making a whole lot of money. Um, so... Again, there's that mixture that we need to understand. Education. Impulse, impatience, pride, selfishness, and self-esteem, if cherished, will do a great amount of evil which may thrust the soul upon Satan's battleground without wisdom to navigate his bark, that means his boat. But he will be in danger of being tossed about at the sport of Satan's temptations until shipwrecked. Every teacher has his own peculiar traits of character to watch, lest Satan should use him as his agent to destroy souls by his own unconsecrated traits of character. So you see how practical the council is. Every one of these ministries, uh, is it been cleansed? Is it been cleansed? And so the summary on page 15, I've summarized it by decade. I gave you this at the beginning, sort of what we were going through. And there is our table at the bottom that I have here on the, on the screen. And I'm making the point there that this principle of selfishness blocks the messages, creates unbelief, in the landmarks, and contaminates every one of the ministries. So the revival and reformation that God calls us to is to learn not just the lessons of Adventism, but learning the lessons of the great controversy itself, the two principles. Allowing the Holy Spirit to cleanse us of that, that principle that's not going to last. 
so that we can be indeed proclaiming the truth in its purity, which is what Jesus is really like, what God is really like, what his kingdom is like. And may that hasten his kingdom is my prayer. Any other observations in closing? Keep studying. This is like the tip of some icebergs, right? <laughs> a lot more details. Yes, sir. Second Thessalonians 2, the only solution is that you receive a love of the truth. Because you don't naturally love unselfishness. You don't naturally love humility and, and meekness. It's contrary to our human natures. But if you're willing, God will give you a love of it. And if you don't receive a love of it, what does Second Thessalonians 2 says you will do? You will believe. I'm, I'm not sure what he's doing right now in terms of who he's judging. We're not given light on that. I, don't, I think that if he could have come in the 1860s, um, there's, of course, a lot of people have died since 1860s, but how long does it take him to judge a dead person? I'm not clear on that. We are not given a lot of light on it. I don't, to me, it doesn't seem like it would take much. A dead person's record is pretty static. <laughs> it's not changing. And, you know, obviously the, his, his judging process probably involves others on looking. So it may take some time with others that are involved with him uh, in that review process. But um, the judgment of the living is the challenging part because our records are not static. They're dynamic. Every day, what you do is recorded. So it's an ongoing. And God's not waiting for your record to show up in heaven and then judges it. He's dealing with you because you're alive. So it's dealing with you as you produce your record. And that's, that's the hang-up. It's, it's the living people that are delaying it, not, not the dead people. So he can be done judging the dead and still not come back because the living are yes. not right. Of course, eventually those living people die, and they're part of the dead too. But, but it's so it's it's an area that again we know that he has to judge both groups. But it's a little bit different if we think about, in a practical sense, what the process is. That's why she said this is transpiring in heaven, and it has a decided relation to God's people on earth. I think she's talking about the living on earth, not the dead on earth. Yeah. Let's pray to close. Father, thank you for again this opportunity that you've given us. It's in your mercy that we are here. Uh, Our life is in your hands and we're alive because of you. We've driven here safely because of your protection. Um, We know there's a being around whose business is to destroy. And we thank you for protection. We thank you for preserving for us the history, making it available, and helping us to Begin to understand its importance and to begin to share it. Give us wisdom to know how to do that more effectively. And each of us here, guide us into a study of that history that will be for us individually important and will transform our lives and cleanse us of selfishness, fill us with your spirit, enable us to be agents of yours in proclaiming these messages that are of utmost importance. The destiny of the end time individuals depends on it so give us your spirit and may we walk with him each day as our prayer in Christ's name amen this media was brought to you by audioverse 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.